welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Andrew Denton. Andrew is Chief Executive Officer of Alpha Systems, the leading international asset finance and leasing software company. Having joined the company in 1995, he successfully worked his way up, becoming a member of the board in 2003 as Sales and Marketing Director. He was made Chief Operating Officer in 2010 and became CEO in September 2016. In addition to his role at Alpha, he is also Director and Joint Founder of the Leasing Foundation, an organisation that supports the leasing and asset finance industry through charitable activities, research and development. Andrew was recommended to me by two very close friends of mine as someone I must get on the podcast, and he certainly didn't disappoint. The advice and insights he shares throughout this interview are fantastic, and I had a great time interviewing him. We cover so much ground in this conversation, including Andrew's path to CEO and his unusual advice to those looking to do the same, the importance of developing sales skills regardless of your role if you are looking to climb within your company, what he learned from the Alpha IPO and his advice to others who may be considering doing the same with their consulting firms, and the importance of finding and building relationships with mentors to help accelerate your career. As my first guest from a listed software and services business, it was great to get his unique perspective on the market and his advice for others looking to emulate the success he's had and the success that Alpha's had. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Andrew Denton. Hi Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here on this lovely Friday morning in your offices. It is a lovely Friday morning. I actually can't see out of the, um, the, the slightly clouded uh, glass, but it looks like a better day to be outside than inside. Well, maybe for the next interview we'll do it on the... Is there a roof terrace here? No we, have, we have three roof terraces. I think we were, we were, we were just chatting as my, my last cup of coffee came, but um, you need to do certain things to keep, uh, keep millennials happy and, and keep them around. I'm sure we'll get on to many of them, but good coffee and a place outside to um, go and take your your pat lunch or otherwise uh, um, a very big ticks in the box. Fantastic. Well, great advice. And yeah, I'm sure we'll come on to, to what else do you attract millennials. And I think it'd be great just to kick off for those who maybe don't know you as well to just get a, a background on your career and how you got to where you are today. That's an interesting question. I'm, I'm maybe a little bit unusual because I've been in the same company for 23 years. So I graduated with a computer science degree. Um, a lot of our techs would be very surprised to, to know that. They always am when I, when I tell them it. And uh, I was sponsored through university by a company that some of your listeners may have heard of called Slombergey, which is a, a very big and diverse company. Um, so I worked for them for the year that I needed to and then thought there must be something more in life because I was going through a, a really obvious hierarchy where I came in as a programmer and one day I'll be an analyst program, perhaps a, a project manager. And if I, if I played my cards right, one day I might be a data processing manager. And that just didn't feel all that to me. So it's a life goal there, isn't it? it it's not obvious. Um, Plus at the time, and it's funny then you think about how life has, has moved on and the amount of time I spend over the Atlantic. But at the time, it seemed like um, a little bit of an obstacle to progression for the fact that I'd have to go to Mont Rouge just outside uh, Paris in order to progress. And that didn't seem like something I wanted to do as a small town boy. So I said a great irony there. So I answered an advert on the back of Computer Weekly and I joined the then CHP Consulting, now re rebranded to Alpha. As a, as a technician, I came in because I knew certain technologies and development approaches that didn't exist within this company at the time. 
And one thing about what we do, which again is something that perhaps we'll get on, onto, because we're very vertically focused as an organization, one of the things that's very, very important is, is for us to be practitioners. We're all practitioners. So it doesn't matter where you look across the company, you can look at the, the CIO, the commercial head, you can look at our global sales director. We've all done the same thing. We've all cut code, managed projects, given professional services, all of those things we, we've all done. So I worked through the, the various ranks doing that. And one of the customers that I was working with as project manager, I managed to do a classic consultancy term, bit of a land and expand. And when I left it, it was a much bigger project than when I started. So it was noted that I could sell. So I joined sales, became the sales director, became the chief operating officer, um, which I did for maybe about 10 years. And about 18 months ago, I became chief exec, which was about six months before we IPO. So that's my career. Brilliant. And we'll come on to and a whole number of points you, you highlighted in there. But I wanted to start with just the conversation we were having just before we kicked off about the, the question a mutual friend asked you, because I think it's a question a lot of people ask. And in, in consulting, there is a relatively, in a partnership structure, it's relatively obvious how you get to make partner. You climb the grades and, and you get there. The, the road to CEO is, is less obvious. And it'd be great to just get your take, as you were telling me, around the path or lack thereof that leads you from analyst in the front door to CEO on the top floor? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because the first thing you want to ask yourself, actually, is do you want it? Do you really want to be chief exec? Because it's um, it's a great title, obviously, and comes with a bit of cachet, but that one letter change between COO and, and CEO is, is quite a big deal. And you do mm. feel your name's over the door and there is a lot of pressure and responsibility, you know, 300 People are dependent upon me and the executive chairman and the, the the wider executive team here in order to make sure everything keeps on moving forward and and pay their mortgages and put food on the table. So you know you, you do feel that weight of responsibility. So you have to ask yourself, do you want it, and perhaps why do you want it? And the why might potentially unlock some of the ways you might get there. One of the ways that I conduct myself in business and one of one of my rules in general is that whilst it's great to be aware of the big goal. It's actually quite difficult to work with chunks of, of anything, whether it's intellectually, whether it's from a career perspective that's big. Mm. So it makes sense, actually, to, to break everything down into a number of smaller goals and then to tack. And again, we, we were you know, your listeners will think that all the good stuff happened before the microphones were turned on, but we were talking a little bit about Agile. And the reason that Agile makes sense is that business is Agile. The idea that you could go into a business and you could say, okay, well, look, this is what we're going to do over the next 15 years. And here's a massive Gantt chart and nothing's going to change. And mm. at the end of 15 years, there'll be a ta-da moment and you'll get whatever it is that I've sold you. And life doesn't work that way. So it makes so much more sense to understand the big picture mm. and make sure you don't go down any cul-de-sacs knowingly, given that understanding and given that context, and then break it down into a number of smaller goals, which you can achieve. And at the end of each smaller goal, have another look at it. And that's, that's serving very well. So just to give... I mean, idea, the sort of big goal, do you say 20 years and then one year chunks? Do you, or is it not as clear cut as that? Well, the reason that, that I'm a massive hypocrite, hypocrite is I never came into this thinking I'd be chief exec. So that was, <laughs> that was, that was never it. I want, to, I want to think I've been successful at whatever I do because I've got professional pride and I want to be able to look myself in, in the mirror. And I'm fortunate enough to be part of the leadership of an organization that has an extremely strong set of values and, and system of ethics. Um, so that's important as well. So as long as I'm challenged and as long as I'm, I feel that sense of professional pride and I'm working for a company that allows myself to allows me to look myself in the mirror, then, then that's all good. So CEO was never there for me. 
And that's probably a great example of, you know, just these little goals. Now, when I when I was COO, clearly I, I coveted the uh, um, the extra letter, but but not until then. But timeframes, I don't know, maybe a year, two year chunks. It, it sort of depends on, on the context of it. But, you know, you've got, I suppose the other point of it is is this idea of, of selling because I think it's possibly more acute in a pure professional services company that what what you can't think is that you're just going to keep your head down, do a great job, and somebody's going to notice you and your your stratospheric rise to stardom is is just going to occur because that's fair, isn't it? So clearly you have to, without getting on everybody's nerves, make sure that people are aware. Nobody likes a self-publicist, of course, so there's a very, very fine line to tread on this. Said mutual acquaintance, one of the things that we were talking about, which is a, a great way to tick a lot of boxes, is a mentor. You know, get yourself a mentor who's been there, done that a little bit further up in the business who will actually give you some time. Also, I would strongly recommend getting mentors outside your business. One of the things I do is mentor outside my business, and when I find it you know, greatly life-enhancing. But if it's in your business, you, you tick the box of getting some terrific career advice that's specific to your business with somebody who's done it, but also somebody that is higher up the ranks in the business is very well aware of your ambition and what you're trying to achieve. So that's a good thing. Anyway, more of an answer than you expect. No, no, and, and, and mentors. So I, I fully agree with you on mentors. I, I just did a brief video on LinkedIn on how I found, find mentors because I fully agree with you. I think it's a, a key differentiator when you look at those who have been successful versus those have, who haven't. And I, I will come on to the, your mentees and the, mm. the common questions you get because I'm sure there are some. I want to just hold on that point around the the agile and the, the sort of sprint metaphor and particularly to your point around cul-de-sacs because mm. that I think that's one of the especially at the younger end of career you know you go through life and you do your a-levels your, your university it's all very linear then you come out into this big world and there's a million and one paths you can follow and most of them can lead to success how during your career or for those you counsel have you determined what is a cul-de-sac versus an opportunity that has not yet come to fruition I think there are probably no real cul-de-sacs in that sense. I mean, if you if you want to achieve a certain thing and you are doing another thing for too long, but you know, life is all learnings, isn't it? I mean, you, your point was bang on, and one of the things that I love about this company, and actually, I think the world can potentially learn a lot from the way that management consultancies and professional services firms handle themselves. I mean, we take in a lot of people with computer science degrees, for instance, but um, we also take in people from a, a very broad spectrum. One of my favourite examples is I've got a not so young man actually. I, I think everybody. I, I see myself as thirty, and then I see everybody else as relative, <laughs> and, and I'm not. You can't see me, but I'm really not. But um, he is a graduate in Italian classics from Oxford, okay. and he's running what I would argue is one of the biggest software implementation projects in the world right now. Because smart people are smart people. Can't teach people that. People who are articulate are articulate. You can't teach people people that. You can teach people to code. You can teach people a particular vertical or a particular functional skill. So, you know, people are able to learn. So what that then goes on to, to answer your question specifically, is that when you pop out of university, and probably up until you're the age of maybe 28, maybe even slightly older, you, you aren't entirely sure at what you're good at. And that's mm. I, I'm a massive case in point there. So you need to make sure that you try your hand at everything, accumulate the knowledge, accumulate the skills. The thing about cul-de-sacs is cul-de-sacs can give you object lessons. I can't promise your listenership that every boss they get will be great and will be a great mentor. I can absolutely promise that if they get their heads in the right place, 
they will learn something from everybody, good or bad. If you understand why somebody who doesn't do a great job is not doing a great job, then you've come away with something. If you haven't enjoyed the experience, then you've come away with something. You're not going to try that again. So the broadest possible range of experiences as quickly as possible, I think, has got to be a good thing. So in that sense, it's only a cul-de-sac if you don't understand the lessons you should have learned from a negative experience. I really like that. As you say, you can you can learn from everyone. It's, it's something another, a previous guest of mine, um, Suki Thompson, said in that everyone is interesting if you listen. And I think it's similar, the same concept really, is you can learn from everyone if you just look at what to learn from. That's that's a heck of a life skill, you know. Um, and certainly if anybody is aspiring to do anything, uh, you're asking me to talk a lot today, but um, listening is so important. Just just clench your lips and listen to people, everybody, in every situation. Vital skill. Oh, exactly. The the old adage, two, two ears and one mouth. I, I try, try my best. It's, it's much easier on something like this. But, uh, <laughs> And I'm going to ask this in relation to yourself, but it might be something that you turn to sort of those you mentor on. And it was that point around not sort of, do you want to be a CEO and understanding what comes with that? Hmm. And it's actually, you made the point there that when you made COO, it, that was when you just said, right, it's the next natural step. So maybe it's the point at which you, you made COO. But do you remember any of the questions you asked yourself or the concerns you had prior to taking either role, and I'll let you decide which one was more of a decision for you. I don't think it was ever a decision because here it feels like a natural progression, I suppose. I know that everybody in every role to an extent, you know, I, I would imagine that every morning Tim Cook wakes up and there's a tiny little bit of imposter syndrome in the back of his mind because he's not Steve Jobs, yeah. uh, even though what did they just go through the, um, the trillion market cap, so he's doing something okay. So so you've always got that. You've always got that down. I think it's unhealthy. It's like going into a, um, a sporting competition, not having mm. some nerves. It just means that you're complacent. When did I think I wanted to be at the very top? Well, I didn't really know what the very top meant when I, I joined. I remember, I remember being very scared and very, very proud. Probably the best promotion I've ever had was the one that was from consultant to senior consultant because you get the word senior in your job title. <laughs> that was... My mum was very proud of me at that point. Um, You've not thought of putting that into your current job title. <laughs> Everybody seems to have the word global. I'm, I, I, I observe increasingly large job titles. And to be fair, the great thing about being being CEO is that that's kind of it. You don't need to be. You don't need well, to some be people are CEO. global CEOs, but you. I, I know a few global executive vice presidents, um, president and first officer responsible for the treasury and I don't know, first sea lord or something. I don't know. There seem, there, there seem to be a, some, some fair old job titles out there. I find it a very difficult question to answer because I never, CEO was never there for me. I wanted to be a great coder. I wanted to enjoy that. Once I'd enjoyed that, I was a sales guy. Being a sales guy was about about getting the sales in, and we we call it around here. It's probably not particularly management textbook booky, but we call it sales buzz. You know, when you've had a great sales meeting, you are, mm. you are buzzing as much as as any any legal high. Yeah. So you know, it's it's it's, it's a phenomenal feeling. But if, I think if you naturally take ownership, then you're probably looking to some form of leadership function. But it's mm. difficult to ask, answer. You know, it's not CEO was was in my sights only when I was COO. But um, to an extent, it didn't matter. I had and have an incredibly close working relationship over 23 years with Andrew Page, who's mm. our executive chairman. He was CEO before me. I never coveted his job because we just worked together, and there was a there was a natural progression at a particular time where we changed our job titles, but you know, that's it. And there's 
somebody at some point will will take the COO title because it will feel like a natural progression. But I suspect that within the leadership ranks here, people are are trying to contribute, trying to take ownership, and I suspect that that progression isn't what they're really thinking about. So sorry, I, I can't give a good answer to that. Maybe to that point and the one you made earlier, the better question is actually, you mentioned that people sort of have some misconceptions about what CEO is. Yeah. And maybe actually the better question is, what are those common misconceptions that you tend to find people have? Well, I suspect a lot of people think that it involves sitting on a, on a, on a big couch with an executive toilet and, uh, and not doing anything. Um, but, What's but, an executive toilet? Sorry. Um, so one organisation we used to work with that for a bunch of, of macroeconomic reasons does not exist anymore used to have all of their executive group on the same floor. Uh, we do not here, by the way. We spread everybody out very deliberately. And because it, it had some lovely furniture, um, the locals called it Land of Leather. So when you get up to that floor, it was called <laughs> land, of, land of Leather. You never want to get there. And yes, some people do have their own toilets and there are executive showers that are. When I started work here, most of the, the sector that we trade in asset finance, most of what we did was what's called big ticket asset finance, which was trains and planes and things like that. And it was the investment banks that were doing that. And everybody coveted being an associate. I'm doing air quotes here. Because um, once you were an associate, you could use the, the dining room. And you think, oh, my God, how it's just utterly anachronistic. So anyway, you, you don't get any of that. I've got a, I've got a very mo- modest office. And I, and I do stuff. So I think, I think chief exec is what you want it to be. You know, the mutual acquaintance I was talking to this morning was about, you know, what sort of people are chief execs in particular in particular industries. And certainly there is, it's more the case that people with a sales or a finance background um, tend to make it through the, through the ranks. Clearly for professional services management consulting, then there is that route to partner and, and basically practitioners are, are making it through. But it's, it's more complicated with partnership councils and leadership councils and all that mm. kind of thing. But... You think about the things that you don't expect is just the pressure you feel. You feel pressure, you feel responsibility, and that changes overnight. And that's potentially what people don't know. There are all sorts of different kinds of, of, of chief exec. There are people who are practitioners, people who are leaders, perhaps people who do the role absolutely brilliantly by being very much visionaries, strategic thinkers with other people doing 100% of the execution. Now, that's not me, but I think what everybody will have in common at any level, big, small, whatever, is is feeling that weight of responsibility for the business and the people in the business. How do you, so you mentioned that happens overnight, and this will be the last question on CEO before we move on, but how did you get yourself comfortable with that level of responsibility? Uh, I have a great team around me. Um, and again, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned Andrew a, a couple of times, but you know, we've been working together for a very, very long time. And our, I, it wasn't that the person who occupied that job title previously, you know, just buggered off somewhere else. He was always around and we're still a, still a team at the top of this organisation. So for me, I was lucky. I think if you if, if you used to do the job title of, say, COO and you go and apply to be CEO somewhere, and of course, when we talk about CEO, I think what we mean here is real CEO. So at the top of the pyramid, if you're a regional CEO in a, in a big multinational, then you've still got somebody who you can look up to who's got even more responsibility than you have. But I think that would be difficult. And for me, I was lucky. Uh, you know, I've, got, I've, I've lived here forever. I've got a very good support network. I know everybody. I've got a phenomenal leadership team. And as I said, I've got um, a phenomenal business partner and, and friend who, who was and is still around and hugely engaged in the business. So for me, I, I, I didn't have the umbilical cord just cut, which is lucky. So I don't know how I'd have coped. <laughs> so 
as I promised, I do want to move us on to just another area you said there around actually those who make CEO, the advice you gave to to our mutual acquaintance of, like you said, it tends to be people from a sales and finance background. And sort of when I started in work, I had a number of friends who went to the big four, did accounting grad schemes and would reel off some statistic about how many CEOs were accountants. But to your point around the professional services environment, the, the type of company that Alpha is as well in that it's has a software offering and a delivery offering, actually that sales skill is quite critical. And I think you made the point there that some people in the, in a consulting or a delivery style environment, sometimes they're right, I'll just be the best doer and, and that'll eventually someone will pull me up from the shop floor. Actually, for you, how important is that sales skill, especially at the junior end of your career? And what do you find yourself saying to the guys and girls you're bringing in about what they need to do in that area? 90% of the people who come into this business, and the 10% is only if it's in the wrong part of the world or for whatever reason I can't do it, the first person who trains them is me. And I think that's important because it sets the tone. And actually, as an executive and leadership team, we do a lot of the training. It's a big investment, but it's an investment in continuity of culture and vision, which is is vital. And the advice I give them and the thing that I say to them is that everybody has to be a salesman. Everybody. Whatever you do. And actually, what I truly mean by that is about is relationships. And life is about relationships. So... You want everybody in your organization to be looking for opportunities, to be commercial, to be thinking about how the company makes money. Now, the thing we do not like here, and I don't think any business should like, would be to get to a point where somebody, I don't know, runs over their laptop and thinks, oh, well, you don't want anybody to be divorced from either the top or the bottom line, because that's just a really bad place to be. So everybody should be aware of the commercial reality of the business. Everybody should be aware of the business that, that, that you work in and, and the secular trends of that business. And everybody should focus on relationships and everybody should have sales skills. Similarly, what do sales skills mean? As I said, relationship skills, but also knowing what to do and what not to do in particular circumstances. So being great at sales, I think part of that is taking ownership of a problem. So I would say to somebody starting their career, um, everybody knows how the law of life works. So at the point that your entire team go off to get a cappuccino at the client site and you just decide to finish the the design study report, that's when the customer chief exec decides to walk the floor and you're the yeah. one left and ask you a question. What do you do? Well, you can't answer that question necessarily. You absolutely don't BS them. And what you do is you take ownership of the answer. So even if you're not going to be the person answering that question, even if it's your boss or it's a functional expert, another bit of the business, make sure that it's answered, take ownership. And that, that's part of sales as well. So, so lots, of, lots of skills. But I think one of the reasons why salespeople do tend to work their way up an organization and whatever people think about getting um, qualified as, a, as an accountant and then finding themselves a CIO, in my, CEO is my experience those people have pretty decent customer-facing skills as well that they've developed mm. over a long, a long career. It, it's because the way to do business right ultimately is, is categorized as sales skills, but it probably shouldn't be. That's the point. They're, they're all associated with salespeople, but it's actually how to be good at business, how to get on in an organization. They happen to be pigeonholed as sales skills, but they're not. And you mentioned sort of the do's and don'ts. What for you are those don'ts? Because I think that can sometimes be helpful for people. Well, part of it depends on the kind of business that you work for and you want to work for. Um, so I can only talk about this business. And 
we're a delivery business. We, we take a great deal of pride in delivering. And um, again, as we were talking about earlier, we have a tremendous delivery track record. Now, part of that is knowing when to say no to a, a customer. We have a value called challenge without being challenging. And it's important, actually, anybody who works in any kind of consultative or advisory role to challenge. And mm-hmm. I think we feel that what that's what people are, are paying us for. And in particular, for, for what we do, we, we're in a position where we say, for this many days, you will get a thing. And I think a lot of your, your listeners will be in that kind of business one way or another. And the easiest way to make sales is to say, I'll do that thing in 100 days for five pence, yeah. knowing fully that it takes 1,000 days. You might even do that thing on a fixed fee contract and your, your customer is delighted and knows that nothing can possibly go wrong because it's a fixed fee contract, when in reality, they don't know that they're going to spend the next six months arguing relentlessly about scope creep yeah. um, and you'll just somebody will just try and renegotiate their way out of that situation. So for me do and part of it is being able to look yourself in the eye every morning but do be realistic and back yourself to explain why the guy down the road is just wrong and you know don't don't write contracts that don't work for your business don't write contracts that ultimately will let the customer down and in that sense you're playing a long game i suppose so reputation performance over the 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 long period mm. is important it's i suppose you don't want to be this is maybe the word I'm searching for. You don't want to be transactional in any element of your life. I don't think professional services, management, consultancy, advisory work is naturally transactional. None of your listeners will work for or aspire to work for companies that do their business for selling 10 days and then going on to the next thing because nobody's market is that big. So reputation is important. So that's your don't. Don't do anything just to get in the door. Selling's easy if you lie. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I want to find out what if there's any resources you'd recommend to people. But I first just want to get your take on the, and maybe it's a British thing, maybe it's just people I know, I don't, you can correct me with either. But there's a perception that sales is a bit dirty. It's sort of, you know, I've, I've and, and maybe that was the generation I am where sales is sort of, it makes you think of the guy who phoned when you're having dinner. But there's a perception that you, you sort of, you do your degree, you get a good job, so you don't sell, you do like a profession. And I know that that is not a cross, but there are a large number of people in our industry who, who share that view. You must have had some people come through the door here who are sort of, if not overtly, you can sense they have that similar view. How do you help people overcome that? I know exactly what you mean. You know, the camel-coated, spivvy sales guy. And of course those people exist, but, you know, sales is a, is a ridiculously broad church. Mm. And, and yes, there is the... the the, the person who really irritates me by keeps phoning me and is very over-familiar and says, hello, it's Dan here. If you're listening, Dan, it's it's Dan here. How are you? And I've now got to the point where I say, uh, Dan, are you going to try and sell me rugby tickets? Uh, really, look, you're just bugging me now. So that's dirty. Um, but I guess everybody needs to make a living, right? And yeah. certainly, certainly there, are, there, are, there are plenty of things that come out of that. And in my experience, people who do those hard yards, you know, anybody, for instance, who can prosper... And put a pizza on the on the table of an evening working in a recruitment consultancy gets gets my um, my endless um, admiration because actually I don't think I could do that and I also don't think I could sell something I don't believe in so there's sort mm. of Glen Gary Glen Ross always be closing type skills of the salesperson who's qualified in spin sales moving from A to B to C yeah. not selling whatever they're selling but not necessarily being bothered about it 
I actually admire those people. I don't think it's dirty. I think it's a hell of a skill. And mm. I don't have that. And I don't think enterprise works that way. The sales that we do around here, actually, I think, uh, I think I never encountered that prejudice, number one, because we drum into people from day one that everybody's a sales guy, but also the executive chairman used to be the sales and marketing director. The CEO used to be the sales and marketing director, you know? So if you want to figure out how to progress, it, it's not that hard when somebody says, hey, do you want to do some work on the sales team? Yes, please. So I doubt if we, we get to that prejudice. I think the point is that, that sales has moved on. So taking that anachronistic view of sales is exactly that. It's anachronistic. Mm. And what we do and what a lot of your listeners' companies will do is is enterprise sales, or actually there's a new term that's been coined, which I think is very helpful, insight selling. So the idea of selling, not through being a flat track road warrior with a mobile phone and a, and a Ford Mondeo, actually getting involved in the customer, earning their trust, giving them good advice, and at some point, and we can call that a sales cycle, but at some point having been given the label of trusted advisor mm. um, in their minds, they'll buy things from you. Um, so you you basically establish um, your bona fides with that organization rather than try and sell them anything. The sale comes naturally because you are a trusted advisor. And I think that's what sales is like these days. If I think about how we sell, we get involved in the industry, we show ourselves to be thought leaders within the industry. We very much get involved in a way that people don't necessarily see us as a supplier to the industry, which is part of it. We do the same thing that you do. It's easier if you serve a particular vertical, but I think that's where sales is these days. You're right, it is a peculiarly British thing because you'll never find that in the States. No. And so potentially it's just the idea that perhaps we're a bit reserved and we don't like people who are on the front foot and self-promoting and a little bit louder than, than we are. So it might be a British thing, but I, I can see that it's a comment that could reflect on sales folk of, of the past. Yeah, and like you say, I think the Americans have always been miles ahead of us, good and bad, but miles ahead of us in, in this space. And and just to that point, you, know, you mentioned a few of the, the sort of more well-known philosophies and sort of guides, but do you have any books or resources you point people to? I, I don't know if you give any out on your training with your new starters. We give out material that they need. So in terms of reading around the subject, I'm not going to surprise and delight you. What do I read? I get, I get very little time, so I'm very focused. The book that I've most recommended to people in this company will probably surprise you, and I, I, uh, it's off my bookshelf at the moment because it's out with somebody. Go on. It's The Bloke's Guide to Pregnancy. Okay. And The 60-Minute Father, because a lot of people come in and, and say, uh, hey, guess what? Um, I'm going to become a dad. And men very often don't entirely know what they're doing there. And uh, in particular, there are, there are a number of rules and, and tips that they can get from, from those books that help me desperately in being a dad. So I pass those on. So there you go. That's probably not the answer that, that you wanted. I tend to read things that are perhaps one step removed from what I'm doing. So I recently read the book that everybody's read about the, uh, the All Blacks and how, how leadership and winning is ingrained in a, in a particular culture and, and how mm. they do it. I tend to watch videos at the same time. I really enjoy the biography on a similar line of, of Richie McCaw, yeah. which just talks about his will to win. Frankly, a lot of the sacrifices he's made. I mean, the guy literally did not have a life of any kind, particularly not a romantic one, and until such time as, as he retired. And that's an amazing, amazing focus. So I, I would tend to read books around that. I wish I had more time to read, to be honest. And it's something, if one of your forthcoming questions was, um, 
what would you berate yourself around? It's that. I, I don't take as much time as I should do to get off the treadmill, even if it's just look out the window and think or read a book or do something else or listen to a song, listen to a podcast. There you go. Because um, that's that, that's bite-sized advice, isn't it? But I don't do that enough, and I think everybody And great for commuting. It's terribly self-promotional, but it's a great uh, medium. It is. For... Well, yeah, absolutely. I see plenty of people plugged into podcasts <laughs> on the way there because you can see it on their phones. So, yeah, quite right. And, and, yeah, well, for any listeners who are approaching parenthood, it's great to get those sort yeah. of books. And I always like di the diversity and range of different advice and topics we get on this podcast. So, no, those are brilliant. And I think your point around the sports side as well. I think if there's one thing technology's brought us and open media has brought us, it's actually insights into people like Richie McCoy. You know, yeah, it's not absolutely. the, it's no longer just the back page, he's won the World Cup. It's like you said, actually what's gone in behind that. Well, what was the, what was the first thing that the new uh, England rugby coach did upon getting in post when he had the opportunity to go and have a look at how other people do things? He immediately mm. went over and looked at the GB cycling team and their culture of constant tiny incremental improvement which of course has has been a massive success and uh, and try to get an insight into that so i think actually you're right we shouldn't be pigeonholed in our particular vertical our, our, our particular trade go and have a look at how other people are successful because success is success and, and sport is very interesting and actually that i mean that raises a really interesting point that i i don't know if if this is what you think on this but i get the sense in our industry that firms are very firm specific you know we work in our niches but how much do you think management consultancy firms or software delivery firms can actually benefit from doing exactly that, going and seeing what others are doing in tangential spaces? And then actually, how many do you think are, do you think that's something many are doing or is that something relatively unheard of in our space? I don't think people do that. I think, you know, people work for a small consultancy, join a big consultancy, potentially if they're in finance, get to the top of it, jump out and uh, join a company like ours and then then go from 250 to 100, 100 to mm. bigger 100 and so on. I think it's a it's a fairly set career path. So I don't think people do actually, but you're right. People, people would monstrously benefit from doing that and just looking outside at how other people do that. One of the, one of the things that was a massive benefit from floating for us is that it gives us access to a lot of people. And, you know, people will have a meeting with you. They want to have a meeting with you. And they are sometimes related businesses, sometimes completely different businesses. And, and you learn stuff. And you'll, you'll learn stuff from absolutely everyone that you talk to, if you can. And the more senior you get, time gets tighter. But in general, it's not a bad thing never to turn down a meeting. That means you will kiss a lot of frogs, of course. But you do tend to learn some things that you didn't expect from... From meetings well it comes back to your point is you learn something from everyone you just need to Absolutely. be in tune to what it is and i think that takes us on to quite an interesting point in your journey because you made the point you've been with alpha for was it 23 years now 23 years and like you said the sort of there's no common career path but the the most cliched one is like you said small firm to big firm and you hop around a little bit and then find your firm to exactly that point of getting that breadth of experience and insights how have you approached that? How have you made sure you maintain that freshness and understanding of what's going on broadly that you can apply in alpha while having stayed in the same firm for that length of time? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I haven't um, because I don't know, right? But it, it's worked out okay. Do you know, I think, and I say this to people who are, we're, we're fortunate that I don't do so much interviewing anymore, but when I did, and you know, the people who do interview here are very much um, members of our leadership team for second interviews. You know, we 
We don't do um, loads of psychometric testing and um, and various forms of torture and assessment centre. I think ultimately, you know, you can figure out somebody's going to be a good consultant, a good software developer. The latter, you might give them some tests, but ultimately it's down to personality. Because if you've got great academics and you've had some good experience as well, you, you know, you just have to feel if they're a fit for here. And that's a, that's a two-way process. And because it's a two-way process, part of what we're doing is we, we, we're selling alpha because we aspire to recruit people who could work anywhere. And one thing I do tell them is one of the great things that will differentiate us and our world, and again, this is in common with your leadership, even for our software developers, actually, sorry, your, your listenership, I mean, even for software developers, there's something slightly soul-destroying about just creating the next ad word, you know? What we do is we work with real organisations and we can take pride in what those organisations do and we see... We see closure, we see completion, and we see delivery. So to come back to your point, one of the things I've massively benefited from, and one of the reasons I think that anything that has a whiff of management consulting or advisory about it, the joy is that it's like working for another company every few months. And you know, one thing that we do, and, and, and a lot of companies do, is make sure that we rotate people through projects and, and customers to make sure they get a broad experience. And that's that's the thing I love. You know, mm. if I my last month, I've visited seven states, been around Europe, and I've probably spoken to 20 large and diverse financial services and manufacturing companies. And, and they're, they're great partners, so they're all keen to show me things and tell me about what their world looks like. Some of them have particular regulatory issues that they're wrestling with. One of them took me down to a place where they had beanbags and showed me a chatbot. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. And again, it shows how what we're doing has enabled them to do what they're doing. And that's, that's wonderful. That's a lovely journey. But I think, I think that's what everybody has in common. I mean, it's a, whether you stay at the same advisory consulting software firm for your entire career, if you're doing anything that's customer facing that delivers a thing to a customer, which is what I really enjoy, that's what I get a mm. kick out of, then you naturally get all that breadth of experience. Yeah. And the reoccurring theme I'm hearing of absorbing, listening and there's people who have been in more situations, yeah, the don't talk but listen point I think comes out, you know, in spades there. And I want to turn to the, the point you mentioned actually around the IPO, because for a number of my listeners, and I must say it wasn't originally the people I thought would listen to this, but the rapidly growing number just by the number of messages I get are, are consulting entrepreneurs who are looking to or have established their own firm with a view to exit at some point. So you know, I, I bundle IPO in that sort of broad church of exiting. It'd be great just to find out, actually, talk a bit more about the IPO process, because I don't think a lot of people who, if you've not been through one, you don't really understand them. So it'd be great to understand actually how that process was for you and the the biggest learnings you took away from it. Well, the first thing, uh, so firstly, our IPO wasn't an exit. I'm still here. And yeah, sorry, um, my, my words. I, well, but, it, but I think it's important because what okay. it brings you on to is that don't just be doing it. So people will ask you, and you need to have, these are really smart people. So investors are really smart. And you want them to be really smart because they're inside your pension and your future depends on them. They're properly smart people. They understand stuff and they ask difficult questions. Your bankers are smart people and ask you difficult questions. And you need to be absolutely sure, whatever form of exit or next stage, for us, we saw it as a replatforming to, to grow on. But Whatever it is. And it's a valid thing to say, actually, I'm a bit old. I've been doing this a long time and I'd quite like to see some gain for it and ride off into the sunset. You know, whatever it is, just be clear about why you're doing it. I mean, that's that's a key thing. We were very, very clear about our reasons for listing. 
and there was a, um, a slightly painful video of me feeling uh, emotional on the day that we opened at the London Stock Exchange, which is, you know, it's just one of those great things you do in business sometimes, isn't it? But we were clear before, we were clear after, we were consistent, and we look back and we're still clear about why we why we IPO. So the important mm-hmm. thing is to be crystal clear why you're doing it. Be crystal clear what you want to do, what you want to get out of it, and why you're doing it. As a process, it's a hell of a big learning. I mean, for, for most of us, and I, I count myself inside that, I doubt if I'll do it again, um, which is a shame because I've learned a lot. I think the important thing, and this is a, a, another Denton business theme, is question everything. And again, that's definitely one that I learned from Andrew Page. You know, you, you never do things just on train tracks and just think, oh, well, that's because that's what you do. Yeah. Question everything. Go your own way where it's where it's appropriate and, and think your way through things. So there was a lot of learning for us. But in, in terms of what we thought about about the IPO, you know, a, a standard thing, for instance, is to um, is to take a bunch of investors, stick them in a lecture theatre and just feed them a PowerPoint. What we did was we got investors here. We invited them to our, our house we showed them how we developed software. We asked them to talk to just about anybody they liked, and we, we made sure they got a feel. Because from our perspective, we were seeing these people as co-investors and people who would work with us you know, for the long-term journey. And actually, the top of our shareholder register is remarkably similar to what it was when we floated because you know, we've certainly had a bit of a journey, but you know, for a, these are people who understand the strengths and the characteristics of our business. So again, it comes back to don't be transactional. There are plenty of people who will buy your stock and then when it goes up, they'll um, they'll take the pop and then they'll put it in their pocket and they'll sell it to the next guy. What you're looking for, what we were looking for was a long-term investment base that would that'd be on the journey with us. And I, I feel we've got that. So certainly listen to everybody as you do in life. Question everything. Ask yourself about people's motivations, again, as in everything in life. And and then do what you feel is right, no matter how many people are screaming at you saying that's not the way it's done. We were extremely fortunate that we had a great group of, of advisors. And, you know, I will, a small advert for Numis and Barclays did a phenomenal job for us. Tolkien is our PR company. James Macy White's a, a legend. And we were advised from a legal perspective by White Case. And they all, they're friends, you know. They, we were such a great group. We ate a lot of pizza. We spent a lot of time padding around this floor with our shoes off, mulling about things. And, and that's another thing, actually. You have a group of advisors who you will spend some late nights with. If you can't look at one of these bankers and think, I could break bread with you and have a beer, then you've probably got the wrong people. So we've learned a lot. It was a, it was a really, really interesting process. And the things that we wanted to get out of it, we've got out of it. And that's a good thing. And we've got some other things out of it, too, which is cool. What were the other things? I did not think that the, so the things, well, let's start with the things. We wanted to achieve three things from flotation. We wanted to increase our profile, which we have done. We wanted to find other ways to reward our colleagues. So not too far after the half year that the results that are coming up, we'll finalize the long-term incentive plans. Instead of giving them to fat cats like me, we've rolled them down to everybody who's got two years of service at the company. So in a couple of months, everybody who's got more than two years of service in this company is a shareholder, which is something all of us are immensely proud of. And, and of course, that's, it's, like, it's one of these questions, right? When everybody says, that's generous. No, it's not. It's smart business sense. It's, it's aligned incentives. It's like when people say, oh, diversity, that's a nice thing to do. Well, yes, but also diversity and inclusion makes total business sense. So it's in that category. 
The other thing that's important as well, which is I think a lot of your your listeners will be in these companies that are outside of the big five, six, three, two, or however many there are these days, you'll often find yourself trying to differentiate and punch against people who are bigger than you. And even at our are now quite exalted size, there are some really much, 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 much bigger companies than us, orders of magnitude bigger. Mm. If you sell well against them, the one thing that they always use is um, that spivy salesman's trick, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So the easiest thing to say is, well, you know, they're, they're little, what's their future look like? And they'll probably be taken over in a minute. So for us, being able to say, look, this is how we're going to grow. We're a prestige company. We've got a premier listing on what I think is, is the world's best stock exchange. And this is how our future will look. We back the company and we're going to carry on as a, as a PLC and we're going to keep on growing and we will be there in the future. So that's just nonsense. So that's very important as a, as a way of um, getting rid of, let's call it sales objection. What else did we get? Um, well, I talked about just access to some really interesting people. You know, you get to meet people, you get to meet other CEOs, chairs of different companies. That's interesting. I'm so still so surprised by just how amazing our group of non-execs are. Mm. So one of the things that that people say to you is that, oh gosh, you're listed. Um, don't you spend all your time doing regulatory stuff? No, I'm involved in running a software and services company and that's what I do. Um, one of the things that helps with that is the fact that I came into this thinking you needed a bunch of non-executive directors and broadly speaking, there were people who would hold your feet to the flames and make sure you do the right things and make sure you tick the right boxes. And Obviously, non-execs are part of that governance structure that makes sure you do do the, mm. the right things, including making the transition from private company to PLC. There are some changes that you need to make. But the thing that's been amazing with, so again, more name checks, are Robin Taylor, Karen Slatford, and Richard Longdon, Richard's our, our, our senior uh, non-exec, they're all people who you can phone at, at the weekend and they want to be involved and they want to pass on the knowledge they've had. And these are all people who have properly been there and done that. They're an absolute joy. They're supportive. They give you advice. So that's like, um, you know, in a heartbeat, I had three brand new world-class mentors. And I think as a company, we feel we have that. So they, they were a real bonus and a surprise too. That was, I went in with a particular prejudice and it was absolutely smashed away. Yeah. And I want to come on to your mentees, but I want to ask a question that someone suggested to me, but I've never asked on this podcast. So you're the first one. This could fly or this could, this could drop like a stone. But it's exactly to that point of actually, we talk about mentees and you being a mentor. Who are the people who have achieved what you want to achieve that you look up to as mentors? So who would be my dream mentors? Let's take it like that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, he's passed away, but um, I'm a bit of an Apple fanboy. So, um, and again, for your listenership, I'm well aware that Steve Jobs had psychopathic tendencies. But as a man who understood how to stay relevant... I think that's astonishing. And, you know, you can see that Apple went through multiple waves. And now you look at, you look back on it. I'm looking at your iPhone, which is a wonderful device. But then people look at it and they think, that's a nice device. It's beautifully designed. Johnny, Johnny Ives a hero. But actually, the, the, the real, real power is in, is in the store, is in actually controlling yeah. the content, not having the, 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 the device. It's content and carrier. So reinventing over multiple periods of time, surviving surviving John Scully, surviving being kicked out of his organization, still doing cool stuff, finding time to save and uh, gentrify Pixar just along the way. That's nuts, isn't it? I mean, so you've got to look up to him. Similarly, who else? Bill McDermott at SAP. So that's a very specific one. If Bill's listening and he wants to be my mentor any, any day of the week, <laughs> what do I admire about Bill? I admire the fact that very relevant to me, 
is he's taken a, a monolithic enterprise company, SAP, and what he hasn't done is just blindly got onto the SaaS bandwagon. What he's done is he's understood, for me, how to overlay subscription re revenue without completely cannibalizing the old revenue model. So he's done a, a really clever job of making the best out of what he's got and, and, and going forward. I also love the fact that he's a properly sound human being. Things that Bill says about, he was the guy who, I'm sure other people have said it as well, but I read an interview where he said, and this, this has affected what we do here day to day. He said that um, diversity is an utter irrelevance because you get big enough and you are diverse. That doesn't mean everybody feels safe and, and productive at work. It's inclusion. Everything's about inclusion. And he was, maybe other people have said it, but he was the first person I read to say that. So being smart, being a very sound human being and being really good at his job in a very related industry. I'm overwhelming you now, but then the other I could add would be any number of astonishing musicians and it could be Nile Rogers it could be Madonna any musical polymath who's mm. had the smarts to continually reinvent themselves and get on trend and not become irrelevant as they go probably those are the people who who I admire and, and then a million and one others as well but if I could pick three mentors I'd probably go Nile Rogers Bill McDermott and resurrect Steve Jobs if I possibly could Fantastic. Well, I thought that was a brilliant answer. So I, the question landed and some great, great takeaways there. And I think the, I keep promising to come onto the mentee questions, but I want to park that for a second to your point around relevance, because I think you mentioned a few, or throughout this interview, you mentioned a few of what I'd say are in the negative used as buzzwords. So things like millennials, things like diversity, there's a lot of lip service paid and a lot of, you see, you know, if you just flick through your LinkedIn, it, there's a lot of articles about how to be diverse, how to do this and that. And I think to that exact point of relevance, you've been with this company for 23 years and the world has changed in 23 years. The business world's changed. It's a different place. How have, have you, Andrew, before you, and then now you with the management team, managed to create and build a culture that responds to that and people of the time, so let's say now, want to come and work here? Well, you know, again, you know, Andrew's very much still involved in the business, so we're still doing this thing together. But it's, I think the problem is, is that people think that the buzzwords are new and they're not, actually. Mm. So what I would strongly suggest is that right is right, but what happens is every now and again, people who don't do things right, um, and actually the, the advisory professional services world is a bit of a bugger for doing that, in that we're going to, buzzwordify something that's really flipping obvious. Yeah. And then we'll shine a light on it. We'll give it a buzzword and actually it's just right. So as you get bigger, you have to do more things, for instance, to ensure that you keep the good things that are good. But we've never thought about inclusion in our distant past, but I would strongly argue that we've always been a highly inclusive culture. You've never seen, I mean, look at them. You, you, you've got the same kind of things going along, which is that you've got, TQM, Six Sigma, business process optimization, right? All of those I'd probably pull into different ways of measuring and different methodologies around. The thing that I think we've always known at this organization is that the more people you've got with the word quality in their job title, chances are the worse your quality is. You build <laughs> quality into the process and into the delivery, whatever that delivery is, make it fundamental to the culture, and then things go right. So people join this company and they wonder why somebody points out a split infinitive in an internal email. Because 
quality can't be superficial. It has to be all embracing all the time. You can't dip in and out of it. So things like that, I think actually, I think a lot of these core values and, and success levers, they've not changed. And so I don't think we've particularly changed. We've always been inclusive. We've always been a high quality organization. We've always valued communication. We've always tried to be collegiate. We've always tried to avoid at all costs um, a culture where people don't collaborate because you are, you're penalised in your career. That uh, you know We don't have three people going for one job. Three people perform, they all get promoted. And that remains the case until somebody replaces me because there's only one chief exec and so on. But you know that's, that's the way that we try and structure the organisation. I don't think that's changed. Mm. What has changed in many ways from where I, I sit is the methodology and technology has caught up with what's obviously right. So I could I could sit here and be smug and say, well, Agile's really obvious, isn't it? So we talked about Agile before. And the idea that it's absolutely a nonsense that we, you know, we talked about to say, here's a monolithic project. I don't expect your business to change. Please sit down, do absolutely nothing for a million and one years, and then I'll, I'll, I'll put something in. Now, partly we did that because we didn't have the tool set and the methodology and the ideas to support that, those kind of ways of working. But a lot of it comes down to the tooling. It's like, here's a controversial thing for a technologist to say, artificial intelligence hasn't moved on that much in, in the last several decades, but it has. And the reason it has is because people had these great ideas, but we didn't have the processing capability to do mm. it. Now we've got the processing capability to put some of this in, in, into action. Um, and there are a lot of things like that. So actually, I suspect that right is right and, and the buzzword sort of catch up. I mean, you know, you, you look at the things that p- people talk about the things that you need to do in order to attract these these golden millennials that we talked about. So what do millennials care about? They care about they care about being proud of the place they work. They care about diversity of work. They want to be paid, of course, they want to work alongside great people. They want to work for sound organizations. So diversity and giving back in the communities you work with, all of those things are very important, but they were just important anyway, right? Why, yeah. why, why wouldn't you want to do, even before it was called CSR, of course you'd want to be active within the philanthropic sector. Why on earth wouldn't you? And what sort of company wouldn't do that? What sort of company would be a, a place where you know, somebody in the LGBT community didn't feel safe to bring their true self to work? That's just self-evidently correct. And sorry, I'm soapboxing this a little bit, but... All of these buzzwords and the fact that it's it's assigned to being attractive to millennials. Well, that's great because that means I can get more talented millennials. But ultimately, just doing the right thing is doing the right thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I do. Cause I've I've had a few guests who are in a similar position in that they manage a number of millennials. I don't know if I do. You know what the definition? I'm not sure if I'm a millennial or if I'm a. I can tell you, I'm definitely not. How's that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say it when you said, but to your point of thinking you're 30, I still think I'm 21, and it's there's there's lots of things in my life that made me realise I'm no longer 21. You will rebase yourself at 30 and stay there. Yeah, it's my, it's my. <laughs> That's experience. this year, so it's coming. I, I the, the the def I see multiple definitions of of millennial, so I think it's a difficult one. It's either born or reached business maturity. And and certainly if I were anywhere near that age, if I were you, I'd definitely be grasping onto the possibility yeah, of calling myself call, a millennial. call myself a millennial. So you are a millennial. Done. And, and I, I, the reason I, I flag that is, I think to, to your point around the, the how you, you grow the culture, and actually it's these buzzwords aren't new, they're just a phrasing on something you should be doing anyway. I, to what extent actually is, to your point, all of this sort of talk about how to hire millennials, it's just how to hire or Great how people. to... Yeah. And, and retain them. Yeah. That's your best hire. 
keeping your best people is your best hire. Now, we've had a retention rate of above 90% for as long as I can remember. And that's really important, something you have to work hard at. Yeah. I want to come on to, because I've promised it a couple of times, and I'm sure because I know I hate it myself when I listen back and I promise something I don't then ask, is actually we started right at the start around your mentees and it's something you enjoy doing. And Mm. this could be a very short answer because you might say, oh, it's just all of the points I've mentioned so far. But I'd be really interested on what is it that your mentees, what are the most common questions you find yourself getting from your mentees? And what are the answers you give to them? It's dull, but a lot of it is around around the kind of questions that you've asked before, I'm afraid. People will talk about more esoteric things like work-life balance, which is why I've got all these baby books on my shelf, and how you get there, what things you do, what characteristics. In many ways, you can you can tell them that it's... Um, the great thing is, is is there aren't particular characteristics. You know, if people are amazing at their jobs, they mm. have, have certain skills. So most of it, I'm afraid, is the is the answers that, that I've given you. I think a lot of being... A lot of giving it being a good mentor is that other thing we've talked about, which is listening mm. and being prepared to listen to people and, and getting them to back themselves. I think one of the things that you do, not by force of personality or particular talent, but because you're slightly ahead in in, in life's journey, is if you if you tell somebody how good they are, then that means a lot. And if you tell somebody to back themselves, somebody who wouldn't have maybe gone for that opportunity or taken that role on maybe they now do and that makes a big difference and I I particularly find that with with women because one of the downsides and we probably don't have time for a um, a critical examination of of lean in but one of the things that that the corporate environment does is it tries to homogenize women which is kind of anti-diversity isn't it because the whole point of particularly within your, your leadership and decision making groups if you have the same group of straight, old, white men making the decision. You'll always get the same decision and they'll just reinforce themselves. What you want is people with a different perspective. So one advert I would put out there, which is in line with uh, Ms. Sandberg's movement, is the mentor, her movement is vitally important. So any senior listeners, go find a woman outside your organisation, mentor her, do it. It's brilliant. You'll get so much out of it, but it's an important role you can play there because getting them to back themselves without changing. You are great. The things that you bring in terms of emotional intelligence, in in terms of thinking things through in a different way, bringing a different spin to it. And that's not just about gender, sexuality, background, culture, education. It's a very, very broad church, self-evidently. Just don't change. Don't homogenize. Just back yourself. Good is good. So that's the thing that you absolutely can bring. You You can give people just that degree of, backbone to to go forward and, and get to the next stage without thinking that the only way to run Apple is to be Steve Jobs. Yeah. Tim Cook is not Steve Jobs. And people might bemoan him to it, but as I said, it's pretty successful. But the point is being true to yourself and just making the most of your talent. So I think that's a massive thing that mentors can do. Like you say, it's, I don't, sadly, we, I don't think we have time to fully discuss that topic. It's um, Actually, your point around homogenization made me think of a, a really interesting statistic. Uh, another a former guest of mine, Matt Rogan from Two Circles, made, and he highlighted that actually, to your point, sometimes you need to look at the micro level of things you do to attract as many women as men. So he highlighted actually the way you for simple things like how you structure a job ad. You're Unconscious, more absolutely. Men or women. Unconscious bias is everywhere, literally everywhere. Exactly. I'm sad like my kids, they use the word literally when, um, <laughs> usually when it's exactly the wrong thing to do, but probably <laughs> literally everywhere is correct use of the word on this occasion. 
And to your point there around people of your level should go and find young women to mentor or any age women below them, I think that, and you know, this might lead to you getting a deluge of emails, so I'll let you answer it as you choose. I think a lot of people who are at the more junior end struggle with understanding how to reach out or get mentorship by someone of your level. And I think in part that's because mentorship has this sort of, I think it's been over-dramatized to sort of a karate kid, Mr. Miyagi, you know, um, <laughs> whatever. The, I can't, what was the, I know him as the karate kid. I can't remember his name, but that, that sort of, you know, you must have your Obi-Wan to your Luke Skywalker. Yeah. But actually for people who are looking for mentorship in you know, whatever sense that might be, how would you advise someone to reach out to a mentor of say your level who is outside their business? Well, outside your business can be a bit of a tough one, but maybe the way to do it is to go through your business. The first thing to understand, however junior you are, is nobody, nobody in the world is ever offended by a positive or flattery request, okay? Yeah. Nobody's ever offended by that. How dare you ask me to be a mentor? It seems so obvious, but what? Damn you. You, you, (laughs) What, you think that I could contribute to your life growth? How, How very dare you? You know, it's daft, isn't it? So first thing is ask, yeah. um, and why not ask? If you do ask, of course, be clear about what mentorship means. And, mm. and I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be a big burden. I think one of the things that a- any time that you proceduralize things, you can sometimes take something out of it. And this mm. awful phrase is mentoring program. You've joined our company, you're assigned a mentor. Well, how do you know you even like them? You know, yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily work. So we say to our guys, we support mentoring, but choose a mentor. As you go through, there'll be somebody that's really obvious that's outside probably the group that you work in. Ask them. I've been asked and have not been afraid to say no um, because I don't want to do anything in a, in a half-cut way. But I definitely wasn't offended and I was nice about it. So again, for, for the younger listeners, it's an okay thing to do. I suspect that there's a middle ground of mentorship, which is an open door. And again, a piece of advice People aren't doing it and may call it other things. But I, I have what I call, and if you can give me a better name for it, if anybody can write in with a better name, great. But I call them surgeries. Okay. So um, on set days, I set an hour where if nobody wants to talk to the old man, then um, I'll do something else. But I do not book meetings and people can book time with me. So this afternoon, I've got an hour and I've got two surgeries with different people. Who It's great for me because I don't, you know, this is not a big company by any stretch, but you can't talk to everybody all the time. Yeah. So it's very much a two-way thing. So it's like a um, mentoring at a micro level, but I do think this open door thing is important. Yeah. And so you even just, if it's a symbolic one, you just keep just because I, it's not an idea I've heard of. Just keep a, keep a block. MPs have surgeries, don't they? That's why I call yeah. it a surgery. So I'm going to be there. Maybe if nobody's taking it, if you want to walk in, I'm not going to be doing anything big and important whereby you can't walk in. But mm. it's better if you pre-book and people pre-book the time. They don't always, but they have today. And it can be on anything. They just what, whatever you want to talk about. Want to talk to me about? Football for half an hour, great, I'm delighted, but I've got to know you a bit better, so that's an advantage. Part of that, again, I'm probably going around the question here, I think part of that is understanding that it's okay to talk to a senior person. So one of the things I do, I told you I I do training for people. One of the challenges I set people is that you do your your initial induction here over a short number of weeks. Your challenge is you need to come and have a chat with me. And that won't be easy. So you'll, you'll come upstairs to my office and I'll be doing something that looks jolly important. I might look grumpy. The door might be closed, <laughs> right? So, um, or I may be having an, an important conversation with the chairman. Mm. Actually, on that one, come in, because we both like to talk to you. But I figure that once you've crossed that boundary and you've done that thing, 
then you'll be willing to do it again. So back to your question, I think hopefully if, if you're the right kind of organization, approach someone senior within your organization and make use of their network. Again, nobody's going to be offended if you say, look, I greatly admire you and I think you must have an amazing network. Would one of your contacts, do you think, be prepared to, um, to mentor me? And please, when you talk about it, what I'd really like is maybe their phone number for every now and again. And if I get a couple of coffees a year, that's great as well. But, yeah. you know, I'll take what I'm given because any contact with somebody outside my industry senior, even if it, it, it turns out to be one coffee and nothing ever happens again, I've gained something. So just ask. Don't be afraid to ask. And I think that that last point around just the the side, the power of your second order network, you know, the people, yeah. your friends, your colleagues, your associates know, I think is massively underutilized. I mean, yeah. we're, we are here because uh, a mutual friend of ours Friends of mine listened to the podcast, said... Moved into my village and off you go. <laughs> yeah, but, and I think that is the point, isn't it? You never know, if, you know, what is it? Five, is it five orders of connection? You can reach anyone through the, the five. And, and exactly like you say, actually, that if, you, if it's not someone in your immediate network or company, it's amazing who your immediate network or company know. Absolutely. And I think the... I take it as a subtle point from you, but I just, just to check as well, I think... That, there is the point you highlight sort of implicitly around, you don't just need one mentor. There's no, so it's not, you know, you've signed on for Andy, so you can't have anyone else. No, that's that's not the game. It's an open marriage. It has to be. But I think, you know, as I said, and, and as you said, you can overstructure this stuff. You know, you don't have to be doing it through the Jedi Training Academy. You just, you, you can get, I've had loads of soft mentors that I've learned stuff from um, throughout my life. And you, you do that in conjunction with other people, you know, and, and you also might find different mentors for, for different things. You yeah. know, people I've got, you know, if you look across my, my actual mentors, you've got people who have just done it bigger, better, faster, more. You've got, um, I've got a surrogate dad, a couple of surrogate mums, um, people who are in adjacent industries, people who are in my industry. You know, you can learn different things from different people. And again, don't take it that you have to take the complete package. There mm. are, there can be specific things that you want to get from a relationship, and it, that's not that's not a problem. Yeah, and so I usually close these interviews with two questions, but we've covered one. I will, I'll ask it just to see if there's any any more. But it is the books question. So I know we talked briefly around your your books, and the you don't you tend to read off the off off sort of topic. So maybe I'll ask ask it slightly differently in terms of. You mentioned videos, you mentioned you know, your sort of digestible media because you, just, you don't have time to be sort of reading a book with, with your schedule. What is the piece that you have found yourself sharing or recommending most often? Let's, let's just say in the last, let's say in the last year. There was, um, that's a great example of, um, of hate figure to love figure, isn't it? Um, any things that I see with Bill Gates doing something to camera um, about what, he's doing with his, his wealth and mm. but he's doing it actively it's really easy just to throw a bunch of money at stuff yeah. you know everybody's got a level of money and you can do that but the fact that the fact that he's doing it and the fact that he is working specifically with um with what are often called orphan diseases things that just aren't glamorous aren't wonderful but actually are going and killing a whole bunch of people he's mm. putting his money where his mouth is so i often find myself being inspired by by that Recently, I have, for all sorts of reasons, I'm not going to comment on how 
viable or what the future looks like for his business. But there's a wonderful TED talk, which is a it's a TED interview actually with Elon Musk. And he, he covers absolutely everything from, from Tesla to space exploration to his frustration. And the thing that I like about Elon Musk is, you know, whatever crazy things he does that annoys the US markets recently, <laughs> um, which I'd probably get shot if I tried to do, but he just doesn't say no, take no for an answer. You, mm. you can't propel a train that quickly underground. I'll just have a go at it. You can't go and launch a mission to, to Mars. Well, I'll try. Yeah. Um, and everything that he's doing is just not saying no, not taking no for an answer, and just trying to progress stuff. That's all he, you know, that, that that's the big message from that. So... I've shared that a few times. I'm a massive user of news accumulation services. So I, I'm, I'm a Flipboard junkie. I've got my Flipboard feed set up. I'm sure there's something more modern, but I'm, well, I'm, I'm there apologies. with Flipboard. I, what's Flip? I mean, it's not something I've come across. Um, Flipboard is is basically a news aggregator, and there are lots of news aggregators out there, but Flipboard is one I use, and it's, it's just an app. But what it does is allows you to say, okay, well, I'm interested in tech, I'm interested in banking, I'm interested in rugby. And of a morning, I just get a feed of news from everywhere, that, for, including my social media sources. So I've, I'm now the proud dad of a Rhodesian Ridgeback puppy, so there's there's a bunch of that going on as well. But I just get the things that I'm interested in. So um, if I can, if, if I don't have something to review on the train, then it's a really quick and easy way for me to get through some interesting news articles and some of those I share. Fantastic. And yeah, there's the that point around sort of Musk and just that drive to do, yeah. just challenge challenge the status quo, I guess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that's something to admire. I think as with everybody, you don't admire everything. Of course you don't. But that reinvention, as you say, just not taking no, not thinking on... On, on train lines, just thinking outside. Yeah. And so last question, and this is one I ask to all of my guests. I suspect your advice and answers to some of these might be things we've covered, but I'll ask it and you can take it how you want. So the question is, you have three people in front of you and you can give one piece of advice to each. The first is someone who is just starting their career in consulting. So take this sort of 21-year-old. The second is someone who is 24, 25, 26. So in my consulting parlance, that would be a senior consultant manager so sort of middle of their first stage of their career and then the third person is someone who is approaching partnership as it would be in a traditional consultancy but it might be your management team here so someone who's approaching that say sales director type role and the question is what one piece of advice would you give to each of them the young one back yourself and shut up the senior consultant Stop backing yourself so much. Hubris is dangerous. Shut up. <laughs> um, the person approaching partnership, I'm assuming that I don't particularly need to give them any career mentoring. So I would simply, I would ask them what steps they think that they need to take and suggest that they take them in order to be proud of what they do as well as successful. Because ultimately, again, you know, you do everything for a business reason, but but if you if you take pride in what you do and you can be proud of what you do, then there's longevity in what you do because you'll want to do it. I want to work here. I get paid, and that's great, but I want to work here. And and as a senior person within any organization, you want to do that. I'm sure there are others, but hopefully that's a pithy, pithy three answers. Brilliant. Well, Andy, great, great answers. Great to catch up. There's been I've taken a lot away from today and I'm looking forward to listening back to this and I know my listeners will really value everything that you've shared. Last thing to say really is if anyone does want to get in touch with you, maybe send you a, a mentoring request following uh, your point on that. 
where can they find you? Where can they get in touch? Well, I'm I'm a I'm an overly open LinkedIn networker, so please send me a LinkedIn request. I'll um I'll accept everybody. Um, and if you send me a non-selling message, I'll respond to it. So that might be the easiest way. My email's all over our website anyway, so that's not a difficult thing to to get a hold of. It's also in my LinkedIn profile, but that might be the easy easiest way. As I say, if you try and sell me something, I'll ignore you. But uh, which a lot of people do. But if you if you send me a bona fide message or ask for some advice, I really will do my best to to answer it or point you in the right direction. Fantastic, Andy. Well, I will put your LinkedIn and your email in the show notes so anyone who's listening Perfect. to this can find it. You've given them the warning about sales, so hopefully no one tries to sell you anything off the I back of this. I really, really don't need any development done, <laughs> honestly. And I, I'm, um, I, I would love those uh, rugby tickets, um, Tom, but um, stop, just stop phoning me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've given Tom a warning as well. So all that's left to say is thank you so much for coming on the show Absolute and all the best for the rest of your week. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.